0: and essence, substance, and attributes, existence and essence, form, and quiddity. What are all these words doing on table scraps? Uh, I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I'm with uh, Dr. Gregory Schulz, And uh, we're we're taking up the ten master metaphors of uh, philosophy for understanding the conversation of the West. And our metaphor today is Thomas Aquinas and his discussion of the phoenix. The bird of which there is only one, the imaginary bird which, uh, builds its bed its nest in flames, uh, and rises from the ashes. Uh, so we're eventually going to head to that, uh, as we talk about Thomas Aquinas. Now, we've got a lot of resources on this. In fact, the text that we're going to be looking at today, as well as, um, some hints on how to get into the text from Dr. Schulz. My own, uh, re- reaction to this conversation can all be found on whatdoesthismean.org. Uh, if you click on the columns, Metaphors, Uh, you can see this conversation and all of the resources uh, there. Dr. Schulz, welcome uh, to this conversation about Thomas Aquinas.
1: Thanks, Pastor Wolf Miller. I know that we're about to demonstrate why Lutherans are not scholastics and uh, probably to indicate why two Lutheran pastors are not the best guides. (laughs) to thomas aquinas but we, we intend to be helpful anyhow
0: i think it's great thomas aquinas has he he has two major people that he's interacting with he calls the the philosopher that's aristotle and the commenter which is this fellow uh, uh, of of or of Acina. Uh, uh but the our catholic friends when they say the philosopher they mean thomas aquinas this is the guy that really has shaped and formed catholic theology uh uh, in in large part. So, who was Thomas Aquinas, and what is he up to? In thirty seconds or less. Yeah, in fifteen or less 15 is what. Fifteen or mean. less.
1: Yeah. So, Thomas Aquinas um, actually became the official philosopher for Roman Catholicism. I believe in the nineteenth century. He's been, I think, most would agree, extremely influential for Christian thought since his day back in the thirteen hundreds. Um, But that was an official move, only done fairly recently in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Thomas Aquinas' basic project, if we can identify some of this from the productions that we're likely to get at, his uh, Summa Theologiae, or this very brief booklet that we're looking at on being and essence, um, it would seem that his main project is twofold. One is to educate um, pastors and university folks to be able to handle Aristotle and philosophy. So the the little book, being an essence, that's pretty much at the center of our talk today, is probably the outcome of a request for him to tutor some of his uh, fellow monks. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, often called the dumb ox, uh, the you know the quiet big guy in the corner, was also <laughs> known as a very good teacher, and so. Um, for all of its density to us as 21st century people. This is really a a little economic gem in talking about being an essence. But for the other part of his program, um, the way I was introduced to this was through Summa Theologiae, which is considered to be, uh, I suppose, a first-year seminary kind of program for pastors, uh, clergy, priests, that would investigate what relationship, if any, exists between reason and philosophy and the Bible and theology. And I would say that Aquinas' overall recommendation is, to put it mildly, a very careful, detailed consideration of that. But he comes out with um, what looks to me, whenever I'm getting ready to teach this, like a Venn diagram MasterCard logo. So he thinks that there is some overlap between what we can know by pure reason alone and what we can know only through biblical revelation, uh, but the two are not, as we say, coextensive. It's not the same thing by a long shot. So, for instance, Aquinas is pretty often quoted as mentioning um, that we simply could not answer the question whether the universe had a beginning or not if it weren't for the book of Genesis, which does decide the matter. So, Thomas Aquinas, um, how, if at all, does philosophy, reasoning, fit with the Bible, and theological thought and faith, and then um, simply being a tutor to people to understand some of the basics of um, middle to late medieval thinking.
0: I really uh, thought, by the way, as I was wrestling through this little, uh, on being in essence, like, um, like I was a long distance runner who had gone into the weight room. <laughs> it's, it's like my, my, my weaknesses are being exposed. And I think anybody who, who goes to wrestle with the text, which we recommend, um, will have something of the same experience, but you, you were telling me before we started recording and maybe by way of introduction that Aristotle also was wrestling in some ways uh, uh, excuse me that um, that Augustine was wrestling with Aristotle and he came across the aristotle 's ten categories which is w- which is where uh, Aquinas will begin his little being in essence and um, and you have a great quote from Augustine on on these ten categories from Aristotle.
1: Yeah, thanks. So this is from Confessions Book 4. Augustine was, to put it mildly, a very bright student. He was doing rhetoric or rocket science in the Mediterranean uh, during his day. And he's talking in this section of Confessions about his experience with Aristotle's ten categories. How about if I just say roughly right now, this is how Aristotle teaches us to look at the question of substance, Um, Actually, the thing that does show up in the Nicene Creed, when we talk about Jesus being of one substance with the Father. Uh, But Augustine's recounting something uh, before he's, that is, Augustine's wrestling with the Trinitarian stuff, and he's simply talking about how tough Aristotle was. So here are two paragraphs. When I was about 20, a certain writing of Aristotle had been put into my hands, entitled, The Ten Categories. What a proud mouthful it was when my rhetoric master at Carthage and others reputedly learned rattled off the list of them. At the very name of the book, I would hang on his words agape, as though expecting some important divine revelation. Yet I read them in private and understood them, though I wonder now what profit it was to me. When I compared notes with other students who admitted that they had scarcely understood the categories from the most expert masters, masters who not only gave oral instruction but even drew plenty of diagrams in the dust (laughs) I found that they were unable to tell me anything that I had not already grasped from my private reading. The categories seemed clear enough to me as they spoke of substances a man for example and of accidents in hearing in them such as his appearance what is he like His stature, how many feet high? His relationship, whose brother? Where he is, when he was born, his posture, sitting or standing? Whether he is wearing sandals or is armed? Whether he is doing anything or whether anything is being done to him? Or spoke of any of the innumerable attributes to be found in any of these nine categories, a few of which I have mentioned by way of example, or in the main genus of substance? What profit had it been to me? Supposing that these ten predicates covered everything that exists, I mistakenly attempted to understand even you, my God, in terms of them, you who are wonderfully simple and changeless, imagining that you were the subject of your greatness and beauty and that those attributes inhered in you as in their subject as they might in a material thing. I did not realize that you are yourself identical with your greatness and beauty, Whereas a material thing is not great and beautiful simply because it is that thing. Because even if it were smaller or less beautiful, it would still be the material thing it is. (laughs) No, the reading had been no profit to me, a hindrance rather. My conclusions about you were falsehood, not truth. The figments of my misery, not the firmament of your happiness. As you had commanded, so did it befall me. The earth brought forth thorns and thistles for me. And I garnered my bread by much labor. Now, I'd just like to offer... um, That's great. Maybe some helpful thought on on what Augustine is pointing out. Augustine, as we discussed in in an earlier um, blog interview, is the one who sets the table for all of medieval thought. So what Augustine is doing here, or the worries that he's expressing were actually carried out in a very scrupulous and integrous way by the later medieval thinkers such as Thomas Aquinas. And it's this. Aristotle has this scheme for determining what a substance is and identifying the characteristics that attach to that substance. However, based on uh, the paragraph that I just read from Augustine, everybody realized that this may be very, very helpful for dealing with stuff in creation. How do we know what a thing is? Uh, can we tell the difference between an existing thing and a non-existing thing of that sort? Um, and how do we get this messed up if we try to apply this to God? So, actually, and as a matter of fact, the rest of the medievals, by and large, treated Aristotle's ten categories in such a way that God always transcended them. So, The categories are great for logic within creation, but when it comes to God, um, he is super-categorial.
0: This is what um, Aquinas takes up at the end of his little essay here where he says there's there's three different ways that substance may have an essence. And he talks first about God and then about intelligent beings, non-material beings, and then thirdly about um, more complex composed beings – but i let's wait to get there the, these these ten categories there's a uh, there's a, a nice chart that we'll have uh posted on what does this mean dot org um the first is in these categories is substance and that is kind of a thing uh I, I, this is sloppy and I know how sloppy it is now after having read Aquinas but when we talk about a substance we're talking about a thing as it is in itself uh, and then and then there's nine other categories which we could call accidents, um, things that are um, uh, kind of descriptive of the thing. But if you would take them away, you wouldn't actually take the thing away. Um, uh, the picture that I always was taught on this, dis- this distinction between substance and, uh, and attributes or accidents um, was, uh, was the picture of a fox so you say, well, what, what is a fox? You say, well, it's a little animal that runs really quick and has a pointed nose and is red with a bushy tail. But if you t- took a fox and you cut off its nose and you, and you trimmed its tail and you painted it black and you sedated it, all of those things that you use to describe a fox are no longer there, but the thing that you have is still a fox. There's a foxiness to the thing, which is, uh, in some ways, distinct from all of the different accidents of the thing, is that a good picture? That's a terrible picture. What a violent class you must have taken! <laughs> it was a, It wasn't a biology class. We didn't actually That's torture an animal. Philosophy, too, my friend.
1: So, um, how about this? What we a what more we peaceful should, picture? That's yeah, what we more need. Peaceful here. Picture. Uh, what we should probably say at the beginning is that. For Aristotle and uh, the early Greek thinkers, as for the medieval thinkers headed down to Thomas Aquinas, um, these men did not have the slipshod skepticism about things that we have today. So, Aristotle, for instance, um, simply took it as a matter of course that what we think is what we say, and what we say has to do with reality. And therefore, in what we think and say, all the luggage stuff we do, um, this is an investigation into reality. Uh, there's no worry about being uh, really just brains in a vat plugged into a supercomputer. No Cartesian worry that all I am is a cogitating thing and the whole world is nothing more but ideas in my little mind. Um, it's it's rather a kind of an adult approach to things. And then... Within that, Aristotle recommended what's often called 10 categories because there are 10 items in the list or 10 slots in his list. The categories can be described grammatically or they can be described logically, and it's the same thing for Aristotle because, remember, he doesn't have this um, kind of knee-jerk skepticism that we might tend to have. So, In that that observation about what essence is, Aristotle says rather matter-of-factly that the substance of a thing, the substance is that of which any attributes or characteristics are said, and the substance is the thing which cannot be said of the attributes. So, for instance, uh, speaking about a friendlier example, um, if we would say something such as the snow is white, that would be treating the snow as the substance, the thing we're thinking and talking about, the feature of reality, and the whiteness would be an added characteristic. If, however, you turned that around and said the white is snow, um, that would be just sheer nonsense for Aristotle philosophically, as it is for us grammatically. So, the notion of substance is to ask the question, what is a thing essentially so that we don't get distracted by things that can be added to it or subtracted from it? Now, an example that uh, is of immense importance for this would be talking about the human being and asking the question, is the human being essentially sinful, right? Right. So um, we might be prone to say yes, especially as Lutherans, because we so often hear uh, and, and uh, truthfully recite that we are by nature sinful and unclean. But in a very careful way, you dare not say that if you're going to be biblical. Adam and Eve were truly human before they brought sin into the world. And more importantly, Jesus is truly God and man. And even before he took the sin of the world on his person, right, into himself, um, as true God and man together, you don't want to end up saying that to be human, he had to be sinful. Scripture specifically tells us, yes, but without sin. So the human being is essentially, uh, you'd have to describe it some other way, but sin is an accident. Now that explains our uh, theology too, where we say uh, the odd sounding sort of thing that sin is accidental doesn't mean it happened oops but it means that it is something that adheres to the human being but isn't part of the essence of being human
0: i think i think that's really important because this because oftentimes the you'll hear the lutheran um the lutheran theologians rejecting this idea of of the distinction between substance and accidents because that's how the Roman Catholic Church as, at least after Trent um, uh, dogmatically defines the Lord's Supper. They'll say that the the essence of the bread becomes the essence of the body of Christ the essence of the wine becomes the essence of the blood of Christ uh, they' they're changed into those essences that's where you get the 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 word transubstantio or transubstation uh, transubstantiation and yet, The accidents remain the accidents of bread and of wine. And the Lutherans say, look, we we don't need to take a, uh, we don't need to take a philosophy class to understand what Jesus says. This is my body. This is my blood. We just believe the words. But you're, you are do well to point out that this distinction between substance and accidents, uh, is, is used especially when the Lutherans are fighting against the error that man is sin, uh, like you said. So, so there's a way that we can, See it and reject it in one place, but see it and find it especially useful uh, to our theological articulation in another place. So that's, I think, fantastic. Now, I, so can we stick on this man, um, the doctrine of man a little bit? Because I noticed in Aquinas, in this little being in essence, there's a place, and I'll, I'll find it here. But he'll talk about that there's two ways that you can define a man, uh and the uh, and the one, I'll, I'll just read it and to give our listener a little taste for aquinas so i'm on page 9 on the handout that you sent uh, a paragraph that starts for the genus is not the matter that and this is talking about matter as in a material thing though it is taken from the matter as signifying the whole nor is the difference the form though it is taken from the form as signifying the whole now this part thus we say that man is a rational animal but not composed of the animal and the rational in the sense that we say that a man is composed of body and soul. Man is said to be composed of soul and body as from two things from which a third thing is constituted different from each of the two. Man surely is neither body nor soul. But if man is said in some sense to be composed of the animal and the rational, It will not be as a third thing composed from these two things, but as a third concept composed from these two concepts. The concept of animal is without determination of a special form and expresses with respect to the ultimate perfection the nature of the thing from that which is material. The concept of the difference rational consists in the determination of the special form. Okay, now we probably need about two hours to kind of get the background to to get to that stuff but but there's two different definitions of, of man working here man is rational animal and man is composed of body and soul so can, can we use those two definitions to get at the distinction between being and essence
1: I'm not sure uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I can provide uh, some of the background so it would be worthwhile noticing first of all that Thomas Aquinas is very seriously wrestling with how to express the biblical and therefore normative stuff about the human being in terms that would make use of, not necessarily have to be squeezed into, but make use of Aristotle and the best um, universal philosophy available to him in his day. The second thing that he's doing is he is doing some original thinking. So it's not the case that Aquinas is Aristotle warmed over. Remember, he's a committed uh, cleric. He seems to me to be very sincere about not overwriting scripture with philosophy, but at the same time, he will not take the easy out and say, uh, we don't need philosophy. Uh, We can just use the scriptures because in large part, um, Aquinas is actually engaged with conversations about God and the truth of Scripture with Arab philosophers and Jewish philosophers and Christian philosophers. So in his day, the lingua franca for that conversation would be the philosophy of Aristotle. So then if we back up, I actually think if, you know, we just read aloud to each other some of those very dense paragraphs a couple times, we can actually distill out of there what is happening. So in one sense, remember Aristotle's confidence that we think in language and our language refers to reality and, and we can learn, have knowledge. In one sense, it makes it is perfectly obvious to say, what is the human being? The human being is an amalgam of body and soul. There is just a little bit to be said about that, in Aristotle, which is not terribly interesting. And there's a lot to be said about that scripturally, where we consider that even though we are created body and soul when we're conceived, and even though we are going to spend eternity with God in heaven, um, body and soul, for as we confess for short, we believe in the resurrection of the body, there can be that time in between. Think of the rich man and Lazarus or think of the many resurrection miracles, when we can exist as just soul. So it's biblically very significant to be able to talk about this. But then there's the Aristotle question. The human being is essentially zoon Logon, Ekon, from Politics One, an animal type of being broadly categorized, but narrowly defined by being an animal type of being that has the capacity for Logos. And so what Aristotle is uh, sorry what Aquinas is doing is I think he's navigating between Aristotle and Scripture on two types of question at once and he's matter-of-factly saying, uh, we don't get have to get tripped up over these as long as we, we remind ourselves what we're talking about. And then where essence and existence come in would be in this way. Aristotle and now in a much more interesting way, Aquinas are both talking, about an existing kind of being, the human being. That's why the conversation can be so long and detailed and why it's important to get just so. Um, The object lesson or the concept lesson that Aquinas gives us to talk about essence is that essence is the way we know what a thing is. Existence would be the added feature that this thing exists. But if you turn it around, and ask, how do we learn in the first place what's what? We look at existing things, we know existing things, in terms of essence and accident, and then we can back up and understand even fictional characters like the phoenix better as the consequence of our serious philosophical and biblical look at reality.
0: I'm going to read this line where he brings in the picture of the phoenix. Uh, Aquinas writes, But every essence or quiddity... Which I think just means essence, (laughs) although it's a cool sounding word, quiddity. And I'm hoping that someday I'm going to get that on Scrabble. (laughs) Every essence or quiddity can be understood without understanding anything about its existence. I can understand what a man is or what a phoenix is and nevertheless know whether either has existence in reality. Therefore, it is clear that existence is something other than the essence or quiddity, unless perhaps there is something whose quiddity is its very own existence. And this thing must be one and primary. I think he's going to go on to say that that one thing is God, in fact. Oh, yes. But, um, but he's making the point that there's a distinction between existence and essence. And he says, for example, the phoenix. We can talk about the, a phoenix. Uh, and what it is according to its essence, uh, and I suppose even its accidents without there being a single phoenix in existence. Yes. (laughs) I'm glad I got that thing down right there. That sentence I I pinned down. But what's the, so what's the significance of it? Well, so first, how, how are we to think the phoenix is a mythical bird? Um, I know this because there was one named Fox on Harry Potter.
1: Although you don't—that's not how you know it.
0: Oh, you're—I yeah, fell so, into the trap,
1: right? So, <laughs> um, you know, we see many things in the movies, right? And we we can read many things in in fiction. Um, the question here is to be uh, a little bit more pushy about something coming to the threshold of knowing and. Uh, knowing has to do with making distinctions and being able to point at this not being that. That's what the quiddity is about. So the quiddity is the thisness. ness um, If I can point to something and say this is a human being, that is a hugely important thing to be able to do. Let me just um, take a little bit of an excursus on that for a second and then come back to the phoenix. So we clearly need to be able to point to individual situations today and say this, this uh, this quid, quid est, a human being. Um, so, for instance, uh, if we're thinking about an unborn child, right, what is this? An unborn child is a human being. We look at a um, wet-behind-the-ears adolescent or pre-adolescent, right, What is this thing? (laughs) This is a human being. We look at these um, amazing adults hitting their stride in our adult Bible classes, or in my case, in the university classroom, and you say, what is this? This is a human being. We look at the men and women that you and I may visit in uh, the nursing home, uh, somebody afflicted with profound dementia, somebody with Alzheimer's, unable perhaps even to carry on a conversation or remember who we are from one moment to the next, we need to be able to point at that person and say, what is this? This is a human being. And this is why Aristotle and Aquinas are important to talk about today, because the quiddity, the thisness, is answering the question, what essentially is a human being? And a human being is essentially the kind of being that is produced by a man and woman that comes from human beings, that um, is a body and soul that is actually meant for God in eternity because they will never die. And the question that we're up to this week is, what about that essence, right? So how do you recognize the essence of a human being? And the answer is, um, it, it is uh, both a very thoughtful and a downright gift kind of thing that we can look at someone at some stage of human life and know from having looked at human beings, young and old, um, not yet born, recently born old and suffering from all sorts of disabilities and say, ah, this is a human being. And then Aristotle's contribution was long ago to say, because it's from a member of the species that's characterized by being animal like, uh, but in the very specific sense of an animated being characterized by Logos. That's the species. Now, the reason that the Phoenix thing is interesting, I think, is to sharpen up our thinking about the essence and, and just how um, perhaps necessary this is to any intelligent conversation about who counts as a human being, for instance. So we know what the type of being is on the basis of this essence business. That which is, well, you use the term thing itself. Maybe that works okay. That that which is the undeletable aspect of the thing. And then you can also have these attached characteristics. Some of those characteristics can be, so to speak, pulled out and put back in. You can have different colored squirrels or different colored foxes, right? Um, but the essence is still of that this is a fox or... This is a human being. And we can glimpse how powerful and definite and universal essence is when you think about a phoenix. Because everybody knows that there's no such thing. And and yet, if I say, you know what a phoenix is? People can say, well, sure. It's that, that one-of-a-kind bird that goes into flames and then rises from its own ashes. Uh, I've never seen one. I never will see one. But I understand what a phoenix is. And then we say, well, how do you know? It's because of the essence. This is a human performance. This is part of the Logos business.
0: Is it a function of, it's it's a function of not imagination, but of, uh, it seems like Aquinas is using the word intellect.
1: So the question about um, essence and being and intellect from Aquinas is a good one in this way. Aquinas is Um, very particular, you might almost say very picky about how he understands and explains the way intellect works. So just for a quick example, he talks about the active intellect and the passive intellect. So there's uh, an aspect of our intelligence to which things just enter in, right? So stuff comes in through our senses, um, things are presented to us, Uh, we might almost say they just come in unfiltered then the active intellect goes to work on that to, to ask questions, to classify perhaps according to Aristotle's ten categories um, and there's also room in Aquinas' amazingly detailed look at the process of intellect for something that used to be called phantasm, uh, more from the Greek, or imagination more from the Latin so the imagination Serves as the place, if you will, in the intellect or mind where all of this stuff is brought together. And then we have a chance to examine what it is that we know and how we know it and, and whether we've got it right. So instead of being some sort of fictional production or some sort of, um, imaginary movie screen for anybody to play what they want on it, the imagination is part of the central processing unit for the intellect uh, if i've got this right from thomas
0: aquinas now what could you tell me what is the um what is the import in other words that's captured your imagination in um in a profound way um, that th- this distinction between essence um, and existence uh, how how is that helpful in our thinking
1: well do you know i think i'd recur to that example of talking about the human being before so How often don't we have folks say, well, that's just your way of thinking it through, right? Or that's just your opinion. And I think it's always in place to say, well, no, wait a minute. We should be able to sit down and talk about whether I'm just giving you sort of an an off-the-cuff opinion or whether this is something that's intelligible. I don't believe it's necessary to go through the entire machination of agent intellect and passive intellect and all this stuff from the medievals. But I do think we have to find a similar way to be as serious about what counts as good thinking, right? So there, there needs to be um, this, this kind of uh, university summa style that Thomas Aquinas really introduced into the bloodstream of the West where um, we can talk about a particular question we can list objections you frequently hear to this then we can say this is what the bible says and then here's the way that i will think that through and respond to the objections and just invite a bigger conversation after all that sort of thing informed luther's entire understanding of the disputation and writing 95 theses and so forth so it's a it, it's at least a demand to serious up the conversation and think about what are we doing When we say we know something,
0: (laughs) Uh, there's um, one of the common uh, attacks that I hear from the atheist. Is it's almost an offhanded thing, but they will say, "Oh well, we believe in um, we don't believe in God. We believe in the flying spaghetti monster." Now, this flying spaghetti monster is, of course, a ridiculous sort of thing. There's no such thing as a flying spaghetti monster, and it it is almost an implied argument there. That they're saying that just because I can imagine something does not mean that it exists. Uh, and they're trying to state that sort of argument. It seems like Aquinas was going almost exactly the opposite way. In other words, he wanted to make the distinction between essence and actor, or the essence and existence, not to say that because I can, because I can imagine the essence of a thing, I know it must exist. But he wanted to have that distinction in hand so that he could go on to argue not the uh, the essence of god but argue the existence of god
1: oh that's a sharp point so that that really does lead into his uh, famous but seldom read five ways of arguing for the existence of god in uh, being an essence toward the end of the section that i supplied you with um there's a, a bit of that talk so If you ask the next logical question after our topic for today on being an essence, so how do you account for the fact that certain essences, for instance, the human being actually has existence? I think that Aquinas would say, good question, because existence has to come from somewhere. Perhaps you could say that notions of essence can be generated by the mind because of of the way we've been made but the question about existence is an added demand so for aquinas when he said um you know in one of his five ways the fact that anything exists or that the things that exist do exist requires an explanation he's just exactly saying what you proposed right so where did where did this existence come from how is it given to existing beings today and then Aquinas summed that up by saying, and this is what
0: all men call God. <laughs> That's right. the thing that 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 for whom existence is its essence right uh, this has to do with the end and maybe I, I just I wouldn't mind to hear your summary of it. Um, Aquinas talks about three ways which a substance has an essence. Uh, and the first way he says is like god whose substance is his essence the second is of created intellectual substances um whose existence is other than the essence although they have an essence that is without matter and then the third way is essence found in substances composed of matter and form so so he th- th- this is a very precise i think distinction that he's making there's three ways that we can consider how substance relates to essence
1: yes so this um would invite a a very instructive google i think we could encourage our auditors to consider doing a google um of the great chain of being so um i don't know how you're going to do the posting but you, you could put a couple of those diagrams in the What Does This Mean Posting that might do that, but I'd be real glad to talk those through. Sure. So, the being whose essence is to exist would be God. Now, um, it's true that this is in rather Aristotelian language, philosophically, but it's also a pretty good understanding, perhaps a bit out of context, of Exodus 3.14. So, at the burning bush... Um, you know, As we preach, um, the Lord talked to Moses, and when Moses said, I'm, I'm not able to speak, and besides, when I go to the Israelites and say, I'm here to lead you out of Egypt, and they say, who sent me? What exactly am I supposed to say to them? I don't think that that is nearly as casual an excuse as we make it out to be. It's a very serious question. So God answers, yeah, isher, yeah, which we usually translate, I am who I am. Now that is a passage to catch any philosopher's ear and mind for a lifetime, because the philosophers, at least um, the ancient Greeks and the medieval thinkers, were um, enamored of this question of existence and of essence. So God cannot not exist. If you were to ask, what is God's essence, how would you do a thing where you do some sort of category of business to explain what category he comes under and what describes him, you'll discover that he doesn't fit within Aristotle's categories. So we've got him actually factually talking to Moses at the burning bush, but he's not subject to Aristotle's logic. So what are you (laughs) going to do? And the, the answer there seems plain as day to Thomas Aquinas, and that is, well, you know, remember that question of where does existence come from? You're always going to have to ask that unless you run into, let's rebaptize Aristotle, a prime mover, uh, an uncaused first cause. And it sounds very much to philosophers trained in Aristotle, such as Aquinas, like God, uh, in his case, God's essence is to exist. His existence is simply part of his essence, so he cannot not exist. By the way, um, I would just point out that as as much as philosophers go gaga over Exodus 3.14, uh, Exodus 3.15 is actually indispensable if you're going to talk about God because that's where the Lord goes on to say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's the God who identifies himself in that philosophical-sounding way. And and i would say that the way that we know his disposition toward us the way that we know who he is the way he feels about us the kind of god he is that depends on exodus 3:15 um and that depends on christ of course so that's the first the first um type of being whose essence is to exist and there can be only one of that sort that's god now the second Um, that you mentioned, is the type of being who has essence um, but the essence is not material and has existence but without a material essence and I think pretty plainly those are the angels. So there's a a way of talking about um, non-corporeal substance which I think almost every time he mentions it... Aquinas is either talking about the angels, you know, in philosophy speak, or he's getting set to talk about the angels in philosophical terms. Remember, he's called the angelic doctor. Um, so he's he's very attentive to that. And what a great way to figure out whether Aristotle is worth your time after you've read the Bible and, and after you've been baptized and brought to the faith. Uh, can he address the question of angels in God's creation? And then the third type brings us um, actually to human beings right so that's bringing us right back to one of your initial questions about whether it's appropriate to talk about the human being as being essentially body and soul Um, and that's what that third
0: type of being would be thank you this uh, this is um this uh, i have to say that uh, unlike any of the other metaphors that we've had this i mean aquinas is um was tough I mean, to, to get my head around this, again, was a difficult thing. So I really appreciate this conversation and the chance to reflect on it some more. Um, and I'll try to write up some of my own thoughts as well as in the response to our blog and to this conversation. We'd love to know what the folks who are listening along, uh, what thoughts they have as well on this. Um, after Aquinas, we move on next week. We, we move out of the um, medieval philosophers into the... Into six modern philosophers, is this right? And and so next week, uh, give us a little preview. We have um, Descartes and his evil demon.
1: Right. So we're going to take a look, Lord willing, at um, Descartes' Meditations and see how things went um, hmm, either very differently or went radically <laughs> off the rails from the Greek and medieval philosophers and and see what Descartes hath wrought and we have assumed right down to the 21st century. And then in turn, we'll follow that up again, Lord willing, with a, a look at subsequent uh, modern philosophers from Barclay down to Wittgenstein and Searle to see some metaphors that will help us to think uh, more carefully and more truthfully about reality in uh, modernity that Descartes has uh, poisoned the well on perhaps
0: <laughs> well dr schulz thank you so much for this conversation for all the conversations for those of you listening thanks for your time and attention uh have fun looking at aquinas let us know what questions you have we've gotten some good questions so far from some of the other uh interviews that we've had uh you could chime in comment in, on the blog what does this or um or send us an email uh, our stuff our emails will be on there as well uh well thanks um again dr schulz for this and for the phoenix for the distinction between uh between essence and uh and existence and we give thanks to god that not only does he exist and his essence is it is his existence but like you said uh he is the god of abraham isaac and jacob and he is our god as well that he comes down into his created order in order to save us
1: amen brother wolf miller